Thomas Fielder. He's gone to the dogs. Welcome once again to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. This is your host, Steve Fielder, with you one more time. Uh, Been a a really interesting week for me. Been kind of busy. Did a lot of stuff that these retirees down here in Florida do, like go out on a party boat deep sea fishing which was kind of like watching paint dry but we did catch some fish and i'll tell you a little bit about that maybe as we go along but the big deal today is that we've got a great guest and a longtime friend of mine uh he and i worked together at the ukc i followed his work uh in the bench shows uh he's judged virtually uh, all the major shows around the country and uh, was also a field rep on our team at UKC years ago, and uh, is a a distinguished author. This guy has written a book, and it's not about coon hunting. So uh, I'm just really happy to have you on board today, Sid Underwood from the great state of Texas. How you doing, Sid? Doing great. It's an honor to be with you today. Well, Sid, it's always good to hook up with you, and I think the last time you and I kind of stood eyeball to eyeball and talked was before all this COVID mess came along. It was at the uh, at Autumn Oaks, I believe, wasn't it? That's correct. We we were there. You were there uh, with Terry Walker at Autumn Oaks. That's right. Yeah, in the old booth there in the vendor barn and trying to peddle a few copies of Gone to the Dogs, The Coon Hunter's Journey, and I, I too, wrote a book, but I'll have to say it was not the caliber of what you did as far as the research, and, and man, it was a great story, and we're going to talk just a little bit about your book in a minute, but before we get into all the stuff that we're going to be talking about today, and as when two old buddies get together, I want to check in with the guy up there in the hills of western Pennsylvania that was a guest on this podcast not long ago and was a big hit. So we decided to bring him back. He's going to be with us virtually every episode going forward in some short subjects. And that's Fred Moran, the Redbone Man. How are you doing today? Uh, getting by okay, Steve. I got a bad foot, but I've been coon hunting on it. And I went last night with a guy out a young dog. We took it along for a while, but uh, we only made one tree while it was along, and it was in a den tree, and the pup was back at the truck. So it wasn't too fruitful of a hunt for that. And my foot started bothering me more and more, and we decided to quit early. But We'll get better, and we'll tree more. (laughs) Well, you're out there just about all the nights. You take a night or two off during the week, don't you? I took one off. The one night I started out, and it started raining. I thought I could hunt any time. I don't have to go in this. So I turned around and come back, and uh, it was just a little sprinkle. I'd have toughed it up, but it was coming down harder and harder. Had been doing that all day long, but it got worse toward evening. So, well, I never like to hunt in the rain either. It's just uncomfortable, and you can't shine the trees. It looks like you got a thousand eyes in every tree, and when those big raindrops fall straight down and hit you right in the eye, that that doesn't yeah, feel very that's good. Yeah, for sure. Uh, 
you was talking to me about, and we started talking about something else before, but you was talking, tell, tell you that time me and uh, a couple guys went hunting. We took a guy by the name of Buck Lochner. I had my own crew in my days. I had four or five guys that hung with me all the time, and we'd go to night hunts quite a bit. I'd Everybody goes to win, including me, but we had a good time when our crews went. We we wasn't out for blood or anything else. We had Herman the German Gearing. That's his true, that's his true name. A good, clean-cut guy. A uh, good Catholic in church every Sunday. Uh, Herman, uh, Packy used to say, Herman don't even belong with our crew. Uh, a good, clean-cut <laughs> Catholic boy, and he never learned to swear till he bought a dog off Fred Moran. That's what, that's what, uh, he's, uh, but we had a big camper van I bought, and it went up over the cab. And I had boxes built inside it and so forth. So four or five dogs could get right in, stall in, inside, and the rest of the guys would sleep. We usually had poker games in the, in the back of that van to kill the time. Well, Herman didn't play uh, cards, so he was destined to be the driver. And he was another Ralph Cramden, only not built quite like Ralph Cramden. Uh, wait a minute here. We got a lot of young people out here that are listening to this podcast that probably never saw the Honeymooners on TV. Uh, Jackie Gleason played Ralph Cramden, right? Is that who you're right. referring to? Yep, uh, that's it. Okay. I'll, no, no, you I'll go make, right ahead. I just I'll wanted to. I'll make it so they do understand. That was a. <laughs> That was a uh, good show back in the 50s or 60s, but I realized a lot of people never heard of it. Well, I just but, like to explain that to them, you know, okay. so they know what you're Okay, you go ahead. And we had, uh, oh, there were several. I'll mention my along the way when we go. But uh, we got to this one night hunt, and Buck Lochner, who is another good friend, he was a roofer by trade and a uh, uh, good guy to know if you need roof problems. He took care of you, especially if you're a kunai. Well, we're all there sitting at the table and so forth. And uh, Ralph, or not Ralph, but uh, Packy says, uh, your wife wants you on the phone. And uh, we didn't have cell phones back in days. So the club had a phone up there, and I went and answered it. She said, uh, you got a dog that was hit by a car. And she's telling me where on Route 30 and uh, 217. Do you want me to call one of the guys out to get it, or do you want to pick it up? Are you anywhere close? Fred? Hi, can we interrupt uh, right here? We gotta tell the folks why why that was your I dog. was gonna I was gonna do that. Okay. First of all, for the people that don't know, I was in a dog a legal name for this dog law enforcement. Otherwise a dog I got into it by accident years ago and did it for over forty five years. I'll explain that uh in the coming up minute. But anyhow, rather than call one of the guys out, 
I went down the road and got it. It's only about 10 miles away. And it was dead already. And there was no ID on it. There was a collar on it, but no ID. I put it in the back of the truck, went back to the, uh, to the van, and I uh, uh, put it outside in the woods a little bit, but not very far. I figured I'll pick it back up when I'm ready to leave for the night. Well, anyhow, we go back to the uh, the kitchen in there, and Packy's sitting down eating as usual. <laughs> I told him, I said, I just picked up a red hound down the road 10 miles. I don't know whose it is. I know every coon dog there is just about. And uh, uh, so I said, come out and take a look at it. He came out and took a look at it. He says, I know what we could do. That looks just like Buck's dog, old red. And darn if it didn't. I got to think, boy, that they do. I said, I thought of something we could do. We put that, we brought that dog back down, put him in Buck's truck where his live dog is, took his live dog, old red, up in the woods and tied it there. And we even exchanged the collars. We put a, the dead dog in Red's place in the dog box, and uh, we go back in there and we have the dead dogs uh, up in the wood. And uh, a you lot mean of the live dogs? The, yeah, the live dogs right. up in the woods, and the dead ones in the dog box, right? Right. Okay. And a lot of people seen us do that, but most of us know we're off the tricks as usual because we. We have a good time where we go. <laughs> so anyhow, we're back in the uh, clubhouse. Everybody's eating and so forth, and it's getting toward dark. And old old Buck, he says, I'd better go check on my dog. I ain't, uh, forgot to put water up there and that. He said, I'll go get ready. So everybody's waiting to see or looking out the window, but trying to not be where Buck's going to turn around and see us and that. So here he's finally starting back to the clubhouse. He comes in the clubhouse, and I swear to this day that he had tears in his eyes. And he says, uh, well, boys, old Red ain't going to run tonight. Why, what's the matter, Buck? I don't know if he had a heat stroke or what, but He's dead in the box. Oh, no, nothing like that could happen. He says, I'm telling you, he gets a big crew, and they all going to walk up up to the uh, dog box and view old Red, and probably for the last time. And so anyhow, they pull him out of the dog box. Buck looks at that dog for 10 minutes. He's even petting it. And doesn't realize that's not his live dog. All at once, one of the guys up there says, well, the dog barked one time or two times up there in the woods. And Buck stopped and listened. I guess he thought one of the saints brought his dog back to life or something. And they're looking. And finally, he runs up to the dog and starts barking more. He runs up to the dog, grabs it, and brings it down because it's got his leash on and everything. He 
He uh, just stands there and he ties his dog to a tree. We don't know if he's going to start swinging or what. But he looks at the whole crowd there. There's about 20 people around, all coon hunters. And he says there's only one or two people would pull a trick like this on a guy. (laughs) Well, Fred, that's going to wrap up our visit for another week, but we sure look forward to having you on again next week. Okay, Steve, thanks. Good night, J.J. (laughs) All right, the great Fred Moran, the Redbone Man. And uh, good to hear you checking in with us. And as I said, we'll be uh, visiting with you going forward some more of those great stories that you always have to tell. And uh, it's always good. uh, In fact, uh, Sid remembers Fred's... uh, buddy there that he speaks about all the time, Larry Packard. What are your memories of Larry, uh, Sid? Well, my memories, of course, is uh, as of, you know, he was a field rep at the same time uh, that I was on the uh, field rep business. And I just remember, you know, of course, you know, sitting around and listening to his stories uh, and and some of them were about Fred Moran, the red bone man. So, Larry was just, he was quite the, con- as you know, quite the conversationalist and he could, he could tell things uh, kind of in an offhanded way. And when he got to the punchline, you know, it was just funny as all get out. That's what I remember about Larry. Well, for sure. And uh, as you listen to some of these episodes that we have with Fred, there'll be a lot of Larry stories in there because they were quite a pair and kind of, um, uh, came out of the same mold, I think. Uh, their minds, got, it was kind of like when we were in school, I guess it was like that kid that your mother told you not to sit beside in class because <laughs> they're going to think up something to do and the pranks and all that. In fact, that story right there was just hilarious of, of a packy Moran combo there of a practical joke. and. And so there's going to be a lot more of that as we go along for sure. Well, Sid, uh, a few gallons of water have rolled under the bridge since the days you and I were uh, showing up at a world hunt together or working RQEs and that sort of thing. Uh, Do you remember the years, uh, the dates, you know, at least the year that you worked as a field rep? Well, it was three years in the early 80s, and in light of recent events, one one that I, of course, specifically remember, and, and it's a, it's really a, a kind of a tragic remembrance now, not from then, but from now, was the one in Mayfield, Kentucky. Um, and, of course, the you know, we all know the story of the devastation of the storms through that Great. area here. And, and so that one uh, I certainly remember, and then um, there were two more one uh well there were three of them in the early 80s i think it was i want to say 82 three and four uh thereabouts was like the three years i was involved in well was mayfield your first year i think mayfield was the first one okay and that was my first year as full-time uh staffer yeah absolutely yeah and that would have been 1983 Okay, in the fall of 83, yes. Yeah, so 83, 84, and 85 then would have been my three years. Mm-hmm. Well, 84, we went up to Princeton, Indiana, and that's when the great Hillbilly Mac was the winner. 
Yes. And then you remember who won 85 the next year? Yeah, it was the big white walker dog. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was talking to Brian Ruckman here uh, by the miracle of Al Gore's internet here the other other day, and uh, he was talking about this young dog he has now called Ace, and he's got a lot of the old breeding that Brian had back in the day, you know, and without getting into all those dogs, he can quote them for you frontwards and backwards, but but he said, you know, I really kind of, two things. He said, I wish my dad had lived to hunt with this dog because he was just the kind of dog my dad liked. And then he said, the other thing is I wished I'd kind of named him uh, maybe Magic 2 or, or whatever. And I told him, I said, no, no, you can't name that dog Magic because he's got too much color, way <laughs> too much color. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Those were the good old days to us, and I know we. I get in conversations all the time with people now about, oh, when were the glory days of coon hunting, you know? And, of course, for me, it was those days, you know, but for the young people, it's now, you know? So uh, I don't know. What do, you want to venture an opinion on that about whether we're now at the highlight of, you know, the main, uh, the main uh, reason that they – tend to say that it's because of these tremendous purses that we're seeing at these hunts nowadays and, and truck giveaways right and left and, and all that. And the money sure has improved. But I think sometimes coon hunters forget about the fact that mainly they're hunting for their own money, you know. Uh, right. And, and all. But do you, do you have any opinions about that? Yeah, I do have an opinion about it. I, I, to me, the golden era, and this, what I would consider the golden era, actually precedes me getting into the business by about seven years. But to me, 55, 1955 to 1985, that that 30 year span was. Uh, for instance, you mentioned the early 80s. That's when the Texas State Championship had its largest entries with, you know, 300 plus dogs a night, just as an example. But um, but I think, you know, going back to the mid 50s, when James Merchant uh, really put the walkers on the map with Merchant's Bali, I think that created an excitement. And then. Uh, you know, you had that era that 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 I'm talking about. And, and back then and I know. And I'm totally aware of why some of these things have changed. But back in those days, you know, the hunts were three hours, uh, which, in my opinion, is a better barometer on a dog. Shorter hunts in this day and age. And at my age, (laughs) I'm all for them, you know, in a sense, because it's just, you know, three hours now for me trying to keep up with young guys would be virtually impossible. But but just for my for my two cents worth the, that 30 year span roughly from the mid 50s to the mid 80s in my opinion was the golden era certainly of uh, competition hunting organized hunting i'm going to certainly agree with you sid on that and i guess that's uh, you know because as i look back in my experience you know was reading american cooner full crime magazines that my dad subscribed to even when i was in elementary school and uh often joke about that I learned to read, you know, in American Cooner, but there is a lot of truth to that. And uh, because I love the stories and uh, and all, but, uh, you know, having 
live through that time. And of course, I try to weigh this thing from a media standpoint. You know, I've got some old copies of American Cooner magazine here that I love to just pick up and go back through. I was looking through some copies from the 70s here uh, just recently. And, you know, and I looked at the circulation statement in the back of the book. And in 1976, I believe it was, American Cooner had just a few short of 30,000 subscribers. If you look today, you're going to see that there are going to be not many more than 3,000, maybe four. And the same with the other publication, you know. But there was a different way of communicating back then. But as far as a community, a Kuhn community, you know, everybody that was in the in the know, so to speak, in coon hunting, took those magazines. And so, you know, and you look in there, and it's just chock full of advertisements for different dog supplies and for different, uh, you know, stud dogs and puppies for sale and all that. And it was just a, a marketplace. And now that's all kind of disjointed. You know, you have to get online. You have to kind of dig and maybe Google uh, what you're looking for. And uh, I don't know. It's just, it's just, I don't know if it was better then or better now, but it was more, that was our time, wasn't it? Well, it, it was our time. And, 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 you know, back to the magazines, you know, that situation is not endemic, just simply the coon hunting magazines. Uh, you know, you see it uh all sorts of print publications, including newspapers, um, you know, the, with the on with the internet, basically, it's, that's just the bottom line. Is is the newer, younger folks, you know, have a different way of communicating, mm-hmm. and and what, you know, what was only the only facet we had available back then was basically the print, uh, you know, magazines. Uh, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's we're we're coon hunting sports no different than than anything else. It's you know it's just a sea change from what it was back then. Yeah, I started a, a conversation group on Facebook called it Coon Hunting Conversations, and uh, Alan Bridges and George has been the monitor for me and helping me. We decided from the get go that it would not be a marketplace. We weren't going to have guys selling dogs and used garments and wore out wheat lights, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> <laughs> that it would be strictly for conversation and that we would regulate it, make sure that it stayed friendly, uh, you know, that the uh, keyboard commandos didn't attack every time somebody, you know, asked a, an, an honest question. But anyway, it's done really well. I think there's 9.3 thousand members now in that group. And you have to be approved to get in. You know, you got to answer. I think there's three questions. But, you know, those kind of things. And then there's another page. It's called Old Pictures. and and I I can't ever remember the name of that one. But it has even more uh, members to that group. So a lot of people are getting into these Coonhound pages and groups. But, you know, you see them growing, you know, it wasn't just 
from the get-go that there were a lot of people. So I don't know, is that telling me that sport's growing? Uh, I don't know. Uh, but it seems like it is after a slump of a few years that things are starting to pick back up again. Have you noticed that at all? Yeah, I think I've, uh, as much as I would say notice it, I've just had a feel just from, you know, I still take all the coon hunting publications and I see the stuff on the, the breed stuff uh, on the on the internet and everything. So, yeah, I do get a I do I do get a, a feeling of a, a resurgence of sorts. You know, uh, I mean, I I don't know how to you know to compare it to the yeah. former peak back in what would call you and I call our day, but but I definitely sense a resurgence. Right. Well, uh, a good friend uh, on Facebook and through coon hunting, although we haven't. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if we've ever actually met personally, but that's Josh Michaelis out in Kansas. And Josh, you know, he thinks the golden age is now because the guys are able to go out there, some guys, and make a living coon hunt. You know, some guys actually have coon hunting as a job. Uh, get a truck, get a get a a salary, you know, and and that sort of thing. But I think. Josh will agree with me that those people are still, uh, you know, a distinct minority uh, within the sport. But Jason Darty and Dartry and I talked about that uh, here just last week in a podcast uh, about uh, the percentages, and and uh, he and I are agreeing that maybe about ten percent of the handlers out there that are paid are on that kind of setup. You have any uh, thoughts about that? I think that's you know that's probably true. Uh, what I would counsel anybody listening to this, or or you know talking to anybody of you know had more experience like yourself and myself, I would say to any youngster out there, certainly or anybody new to the sport, let me tell you something. If you've got a dog that consistently trees coon on a real regular basis. You've got as good a dog as 95 to 99 percent of all the other hunters everywhere. Uh, what I would uh, counsel is don't read these ads and look at this and think, oh my gosh, those dogs are, you know, light years ahead. They're, they're really not. It's a combination of the dogs and the handlers and things. So uh, I think it's great to create the excitement, but I, I would, anybody who's for whatever reason is not able to pursue it at that level you know don't worry about it if you've got a dog that consistently trees coon you're right up there with the top well I, again i couldn't agree with you more sid and uh you know i back in my sales career before i went to the registry oh chester roberts i'll never forget him he was from tennessee he used to drive through the state of west virginia on his way to ohio he was an insurance salesman and Chester would pass through our town there in southern West Virginia, and he realized that there was no uh, uh, major cemetery in that town, just uh, little family cemeteries around, scattered around the country. So he borrowed the money, found an investor, uh, bought 55 acres, and started a, a Memorial Park Cemetery in our uh, town there. Uh, near Beckley, West Virginia, and 
uh, he parlayed that into, I think there was 30 cemeteries and about six funeral homes in a six-state area before uh, leukemia uh, got him at age 63. A really interesting guy and a guy with a ton of stories. But he used to tell us, and I, by the way, when I came home from the military, I went to work for him, and I did that type of work in, in a management uh, role uh, for about 10 years before I went to work for UKC. And uh, he'd say, boys, it's just like throwing manure on the barn wall. The more you throw, the more will stick, you know. <laughs> yeah. So that's the deal you know guys that get out there you'll look and see that that dog that won the world championship doesn't win it every year that dog that won the national championship doesn't win it every year the texas state champion is not the same dog every year uh you know it, there's a lot of uh, uh luck as we say in the game if you believe in luck uh but you know circumstances change uh, the more you go the more you enter the dog the more the better your chances to win but i think jason and i darty and i the other day uh darty i always have trouble with his name he laughs, <laughs>, laughs at me but you know uh the, the those if a guy as as you said has got a dog that can consistently pre-coons he's going to win if he goes you know and yes not, not every time and i think that's where we lose sight of that and i think that's uh what happens a lot of these really high dollar dogs you know they're on a roll so they bring a big price but then then uh you know they go into a slump or they just circumstances you know prove that they're just dogs Yes. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's a great point, Sid. And we certainly want to encourage anybody. You know, I'm sitting here at an age now where I can't. Uh, and I, I hesitate to say this. People think I'm in a wheelchair. No, no, no. I can follow a dog. I can follow a dog at my speed. You know, if he's tree through the country, I can go get my dog. But I'm not going to get there real fast. <laughs> No uh, anymore, you know. <laughs> but so I don't want to leave the impression that you know, um, uh, you know, I can hear the angels singing. But uh, I hope <laughs> that they'll be singing for me. But anyway, uh, but you know, things have changed for me. But for the younger guys, and I'm going to get on the soapbox here just a little bit if you if you'll indulge me. I'll certainly do that. I think that this idea, and we've discussed this before, of the type dogs we're hunting today, the type dogs that are winning today, and all has to change. It it just simply does because we're hunting a dog that hunts extremely wide and is independent, and you know, and. Without getting into all the pluses and minuses, I see PKC's directors have just recently voted to go back to the leash lock type rule where, you know, if you score the dogs uh, in most convenient order or out of order, 
you've got to keep those dogs on a leash until you get all the trees scored. You know, uh, what was happening, these dogs were treed at four points of the compass, you know, and, and then yep. they said everybody has to go to every tree. Well, me at 75 years old, and your dog trees in there three quarters of a mile, I'll be okay. I'll get to that tree. But when right. we have to go back that three quarters plus another three quarters in the other direction to my dog and then and then two more, you know, I can't do it. And no. uh, the guides don't want to do it. And I think coon hunters, and there's another soapbox I could jump on. You know, I don't think the coon hunters consider those guys that are out there guiding or possibly judging, they're having to make all those trees too. And he right. guys said, oh boy, what am I going to do tonight? Can I go to a movie with my wife or go out and walk my guts out for six or seven miles? <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, uh, I know. Uh, it, uh, well, you know, the, the thing is, uh, and you know, I've, I've heard you uh, maybe in written form or I know oral form both probably, you know, you your joke and and i'm right there with you you know you said in your salad days you were the first of the tree and now you're the last of the tree you know it, it, it's kind of almost like the biblical quote the first shall be last yeah the last will be first i mean exactly you know over from our the time you and i were in our 20s and 30s and 40s or whatever and now that we're septuagenarians plus you know <laughs> Uh, it's just it's just a fact of life. And like is. you say, if I go at my pace, yes, I my dog trees a mile in there. Yeah, at my pace, sure, I can get in there and and get get the dog and and be fine. But but if you have to do that, as you alluded to three or four times, especially trying to keep up with a twenty five something year old something a walker, you know, it's it's just it's just right. virtually right. it's virtually impossible to. Do. Well, as I do, do these podcasts each week, I, I guess the thing that I don't want to do and the thing that I do want to come is I don't want to have the listeners out there to think that I want everything to go back just like it was when I was a young man and when I could run up and down those hills and hollows in southern West, West Virginia. And all when now I, I look at the mountain and I say, no way, I'm not. All right. You know, right. I don't want to go back to those days, but I do want the listeners to listen to people like you, people of experience, and and say, man, that makes sense. And the way you know we're training this dog, or the way we're breeding these dogs, and so forth. There was a lot of good things that came out of all those years. And there's never any substitute for being able to hunt a dog. Do you agree? Yeah, no, I, no, I do agree that, that there is no substitute for it. And, and, you know, those who are young or middle-aged now, they'll be, you know, where you and I are one of these days. Uh, and mm -hmm. hopefully, hopefully the sport's still going and they're still enjoying it. I just think that uh, I, there again, I would, I went back, uh, go back to what you just said. Uh, you know, I don't want, I'm like, you No, the, the, the genie's out of the bottle. It's a little bit different sport now, and it's never going to be exactly the same as it was. And, you know, coon hunting is no different than anything else. And, you know, fishing's not like it was 50 or hundred years ago. I mean, it's just, you know, everything changes for one reason or another through technology and so on. But what I would say is, 
you can enjoy this sport, uh, you know, at a minimal level and have the time of your life. Or you, if you want to go for the gusto and go for the, you know, the silver trophy and the and the twenty thousand dollars or whatever, you can do that too if that's what mm-hmm. uh, what you what you like. And there's nothing wrong with any of it and, or anything in between those two. Uh, areas which the vast majority I would submit to you are between the two, the ones who go for the complete gold at the top and those who just, you know, are kind of just minimalist as far as just, they tr- you know, never hunt more than 10 miles from the house or whatever. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a big wide sport and there's all sorts of ways to enjoy it at your, at your particular situation. Mm-hmm. Well, you bring up a good point there, Sid, very much. And I was just on a phone conversation earlier this morning uh, with a gentleman that I've partnered with on a on a new project, a, a plot pup uh, uh, that uh, goes, he's a grandson of the old horse dog that I had that I talked and wrote about so much. Uh, and, all, and as he... Uh, my partner and I were talking about this young dog and, and kind of our goals. He's he's going to be the legs and the and the trainer and the, and and uh, you know and simply he said what what do you want out of this partnership, Steve? And I said, well, all I got to give you there is what my wants are just simply to see this pup have a chance. And see this pup, you know, mature into a nice dog. If that's if that's what God put inside him, but I know that down here living in this swamp, uh, that's not going to happen for him, you know. So, right. but my point being, it goes along with what you were saying is, there's a lot of enjoyment for me at this stage of my career to be able to partner with somebody that's out there hunting virtually every night. And reporting back and saying the pup did this and the pup did that. And then as my travels allow, I go and I get to hunt with that pup. Or maybe if he makes it all, I may take him to the White River with me next year. And places that I go, I pick and choose my spots anymore. You know, I'm not going to go to to uh, the Great Smoky Mountain National Park to right. hunt. You know, I'm going to go to a nice uh <laughs> spot in a cornfield up in northern indiana or southern <laughs> michigan you know and but but that's a level you know training a pup out and even though you're not doing or i'm not doing the physical training of that pup i've got my name on his papers too and i've got a partner that we you know we we uh we own the dog together and i can still participate you know, and I told him, I said, that's really all I want out of this deal is to be able to participate in the development of this puppy, even though it is, uh, what's the word, vicariously? Yeah, vicariously. You took the word out of my mouth. I was, <laughs> you know, I've got some younger friends who I'm affiliated with now, and and uh, and and you're right. And I I'm I am in a position here that that I do, of course can and do hunt still fairly regularly but having said that as far as going seriously into the competition stuff anymore or or you know just it just it's just not like it was in 1960s or 70s or whatever for me but 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 still as you the vicariously is is a great way to describe <laughs> it you're you're still 
you know, you're still involved, you know. Yeah, I, mean, that, I think I that's mean, the point. And you can be, and the word is to these people, that uh, these young people, is that this sport is something that you can be involved in for your entire life. Yes. I, I'm, yeah. a, I'm an example of that. You know, I think the first time I, I wrote about the musky smell of mules and all was a story about my dad and I taking me coon hunting with his friend and the, his, his friend's son, who they both became famous, uh, if you will, as the governor of Tennessee and a, a state representative for ten or a, 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 a House of Representative member for Tennessee. But I remember sitting on that mule with my dad about three and a half years old right you know and so that's my three score and 20 (laughs) plus you know ago and i'm still enjoying it am i hunting every night no you know do i wish i you know still had the hunting that i had all those years in michigan where i uh, the biggest uh, concern was how do i uh which place do I go? I got about 30 <laughs> places here I can pick. Where do I want to go tonight? All right. But right. those days, those days are over for me for sure, but I still enjoy the sport. And, uh, and you know, when I, um, learned that you were going to be able to be with me today, Sid, uh, it, I began to take this little nostalgic trip back through the years that I so enjoyed being in the state of Texas. And of course the first my first taste of Texas hunting was in the Air Force in sixty nine and seventy in San Angelo, hunting along the Concho River and uh, uh, and all that and it and I immensely enjoyed that. And then of course the Texas State hunt each year that I was with UKC. So I met lots and lots of folks in Texas. Always loved Texas and also I, I I have to check myself on these podcasts because I, I know that people don't want to just hear me reminisce about the past always. I know they like stories and so forth, but I don't want it to be all about me. But I take the opportunity when I get somebody like you on the podcast to to kind of take a trip uh, back. And, you know, what was it like for you? to go to the Texas State hunt in Fairfax. Well, actually, probably you started at Mahalia at Fort yeah, Parker, I started didn't you? At, at Fort Parker State Park, and for those interested in history, it's just north of the original Fort Parker, where the world-famous Comanche chief, Quanta Parker's mother, uh, who was a white woman, was kidnapped as a little girl. And, of course, subsequently she became Quanta Parker's mother. So there's a lot of history there. But you're right, Fort Parker State Park, uh, just north of the historic Fort Parker, uh, was where the Texas State Hunt originated back in the 50s. And when I first went to it in 64, uh, it was still there. And as I recall, I think it was stayed there until about 68 and then it just the numbers were it was just too small for the numbers um and so then that's when it moved to fairfield texas well that of course was my first experience was in 1983 uh 83 yeah because i didn't get to go to the state hunt the way um 
while I was in San Angelo. Uh, the way my I was there about a year for the tech school, I shipped out in August, which would have been the month right before the state hunt. And I guess when I got there, uh, maybe in July or something, I was you know head over heels in, in uh, being a uh, just out of basic training and all. But it was about that time that I met the local coon hunters there around San Angelo and began to hunt uh, religiously. It's a good thing I didn't have a lot of homework to do in that tech school because <laughs> every night, and those guys were so great to me. I mean, I didn't have a vehicle. Um, for the first part of, of my tour there, I didn't even have a dog, you know, and, and but I was going to the night hunts with the guys, and they'd give me a dog to hunt. And all, and it, it it was a great time. But when I first went to uh, to uh, Fairfield to the fairgrounds there, I was just blown away. It was a total different vibe from any hunt that I had attended back east. You know, the whole atmosphere of that. It to me, it was more like a big carnival, but there was no Ferris wheel. You know, <laughs> well, I mean, there were mules and there were, there were, uh, 42, is it 42 or 50? What's that, what's that domino game? 42. 42. There were game, uh, domino games going on everywhere. They had the little lean twos where people open sided tent type affairs where people were camped out. You could see their cots and their bed rolls and, and the vendor barns and that constant uh uh loudspeaker system going on and i guess that's maybe what reminded me of the fair or a carnival but uh it was just a whole different vibe from any coon hunt that i had attended before yeah it it i would describe it as a happening um and for texas coon hunters in particular I mean, it was kind of our mecca, you know, every mm -hmm. year. I mean, you, uh, it was back in the day. And now when you got into it, it moved to the weekend after Labor Day. But back in the first started, it was the second weekend in October. But nonetheless, uh, it, I would liken it to the old mountain men rendezvous and stuff. People <laughs> came there. And as you said, they had a huge numbers of hunters, of course, who did participate in the, the, the night hunt itself. But there were scads of other people who um, just came there. I mean, yeah. they, they they might kind of only be remotely related to coon hunting, but they came there just for the, as you say, for the the circus-like atmosphere. And, mm -hmm. and I mean, you had everybody from, you know, known people to, to, to guys who, like I say, other than coon hunting 10 miles around their house they never went to another hunt all year long except to the state hunt i mean in fact it was so when i first started it was what was funny about it if in, in the hound business if you had all you said was you didn't even say state hunt you would say mahaya and everybody knew mm -hmm. what you were talking about yeah i mean and then for years it was fairfield i mean it, you didn't even have to mention the fact that it was a state hunt when they said mahaya or fairfield you knew they were talking about Texas State. Yeah. Huh? Well, you know, what was one of the things that was so impressive to me, and, and I, several things are coming through my mind right now, was the directors of the Texas State Coon Hunters Association were all there and 
I think they had green or yellow or black shirts, I believe. Yeah, green and yellow is the color. Of yeah, the okay. And they would have those, you know, whatever they, if it was yellow day, every, every director had on a yellow shirt. And it said yep. it was embroidered, Texas State Tuner Association. It said director or whatever. The act was together, man. I mean, and they were busy. They weren't, I found out that the directors weren't just there, uh, you know, loafing. Everybody had a job, something to do. The draw time, there were so many things that were unique about that. And I could go over down the list, Sid, from my standpoint, having been back east. You know, it, yeah. it was okay. Little things I'd never seen the entry slips all put into a separate pill bottle. <laughs> right. Yeah. I yeah. never saw that anywhere <laughs> before or since. And I guess that was to keep them from sticking together. Was that the rationale for that? Well, on the drive or what? And it was easy with the the pill bottle set up. Then you had an a easy way to differentiate the the registered night champion and, mm-hmm. and grand night champion. So so it, it 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 played a part in number one, just li- literally not losing the slip because of, you know, particularly mm-hmm. in those days when there were so many entries. My heavens, that you could easily see that happening. But sure, you know, once once you got it in that pill bottle, obviously it wasn't going mm-hmm. anywhere. And we're talking 300 dogs plus a night. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then, uh, you know, the other thing, the term, and it's a Southern term, but anywhere you go around the country, you would call, it's time, you know, you call a guy a guide, the one that's going to take the cast to the woods is your guide. Not in Texas. It's a cast carrier. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that that was kind of you know, and that that is kind of we have a lot of colloquial mm-hmm. colloquialisms here in Texas, as you well know. But and and you know, we eat dinner in the middle of the day, not at yeah. night. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, well, uh, my my grandmother always said so and so was coming to carry me to town. You know, so that she was scary, in Tennessee. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, that was the, the notion was you were kind of the, you were the carrier in that you, you kind of, you were in charge and you conveyed them. Of course, you didn't take more than one vehicle in a lot of cases, but, right. but yeah, you were, you, that you were considered the carrier of that. Yeah. Cat. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And, and the, the PA system that just kind of went on day and night, you know, and, uh, some certain voices almost choke up when I think about them, but. And one, of course, is Dallas Sanders. Uh, Dallas was, <laughs> uh, when Dallas got on the mic, he was going to be there for a while. Yeah. Uh, he... But uh, he he loved his English dogs, and he got to hunt well up into, I imagine, his 80s. I don't know how old Dallas was when he passed, but he was a Texas coon hunting legend, and I remember yeah, he... very well. He certainly was. He's a great guy, and 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 yeah, he now of course in the latter years he finally got to where he was just showing his dogs there. But, yeah, uh, I I don't I can't prove this, but uh, I would say there were few people in history who participated in one form or another in that event than Dallas Sanders. You know, oh, I, yeah. that now I, I guess I'm starting to. Approach that, uh, but that just means I'm getting old. 
<laughs> yeah, we are the seniors now, see. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how it works, you know. Yeah. But yeah, yeah there's so, so many precious memories of, mm. uh, oh, there's so many, you know, guys that the national audience would, uh, and, and gals for that matter, the national audience might never know about, but uh, there were legends in, in East Central Texas like Ben Childers and Cleve Ferguson. And I mean, I could mm. go on and on. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, they were, you know, they, they were, Literally, in, 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 in their part of the world, anyway, they were truly running legends. Well, that's one of the things I guess it surprised me when I went out to Texas is, number one, how big the state is. And Ella and I one time drove back from California, and we drove across Interstate 10 from El Paso to Beaumont, and it was 900 and some miles. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're still well, in Texas. Yeah. Texas is—I'm not saying it's the only state, but it's—it's it's probably the most demonstrable in in that you in the western part of the state you could literally tree coons and mesquite trees ten or twenty feet high, and you could go to the big thicket in the, what we call deep east Texas and tree coons and some of the biggest cypress and oak trees you've ever seen in your life. Well, that's exactly true, and uh, you know, uh, I got to, my first experience was with those mesquite trees right. and the occasional cottonwood down along an old dry creek bed, you know. Uh, right. But then, when we took the world championship to Crockett or the American Heritage Hunt to Hearn, we began to see, you know, what the woods were like, and. Uh, of course, I've never hunted the big thicket. I don't guess is that in Crockett. You're getting pretty close, aren't you? Yeah, Crockett is probably northwest of the big thicket, about a hundred miles as profile. Right. Well, if you read the history of of hounds and hunting, and I've been listening to some tapes on uh, uh, the uh, W Supply Network, which this podcast appeared on, of uh, the tapes of uh, uh, Dale Lee, the famous Lee brothers of Arizona, and talking and talking about Ben Lilly, and I think anybody that follows hounds has read some of the stories or heard some of the stories about the famous hunter Ben Lilly. I believe he was originally from Louisiana, but it may have been farther east than that. Yeah, but, yeah I, he may have been a native of Alabama, but he yeah. was he's in Louisiana. In fact, he guided Theodore Roosevelt on a bear hunt in Louisiana. But uh, Ben Lilly also at one time lived and hunted in the Big Thicket. Exactly. That's, yeah, yeah, that's where I wanted to go with that, was that, yeah, that he was there, and there were bears, apparently, in right. that area at that time. Yeah. So, yeah, so Texas is so diverse, but what amazed me is about that state hunt, people came from all over. Even when I, you know, I was with UKC and was very pleased and honored because they certainly treated me like family when I was in the military in San Angelo. Uh, Robert Knox uh, was there, and I got to, and Boots Atwell, and, and was it Atwell or? Yeah, Boots Atwell. Yeah. And, and Bert Martin and his wife, uh, people that I hunted that, that took me under the wing, picked me up at the barracks, took me coon hunting, uh, you know, 
Bert and I got to go up to uh, Robert Lee, Texas, and pick out a an angora goat out of a crowd there, kids, and bring a quarter of that home and barbecue it over mesquite. <laughs> Man, that's some good eating. I'd never eaten goat before, but uh, I learned, you know, that when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Uh, and they even had ran- rattlesnake roundups around San Angelo, and guys brought in rattlesnake, and I had some of that too. So, all right, yeah. Right. So, but Texas was an uh, awesome experience for me when I was a, a young man. I, I guess I was uh, what about twenty two when I was there. Uh, uh, that that sixty nine and seventy parts of those two years. But the Texas, back to the Texas State Hunt, it was just a phenomenal event. And it almost reminds me, I would put it in in the category of the great events that I've attended over the years, like the PKC World Hunt at Aurora, Kentucky, and like the uh, like Autumn Oaks at Greencastle, Indiana, years ago. And, and of course, uh, Orangeburg for the Grand American. Those places are just, and I would have to put back in the day, Ada, Oklahoma, uh, you know, yeah. for the Tree and Walker sectional up there, the Pete DeAndrea Memorial Hunt in Ada. Uh, I'm sure you went to Ada many times, didn't you, Sid? Oh, yeah. I started in 67, and, and yes, uh, for, you know, year after year after year. And, you know, so many, uh, Ada was an up far enough north that we actually, a lot of the famous Midwestern uh, coon hunters came down. And I'll never forget, this was back the day when, I guess, Russell Cross had bought Banjo 2 mm-hmm. from James Merchant. But there was a truck, and I think it was Russell Cross, and it had a camper cover on it. But I looked, and in the back of this truck with the camper cover, the lid opened, the three of them side by side, uh was Merchant's Banjo 2, Finley River Spot, and Finley River Chief in the back of the same truck. All right. And so that That's was a trio thing. right there. <laughs> Man, think about it. And you know, it and we talked about this I think here recently, um not maybe not you and me, but in, in a podcast about back in the day, those dogs were like that the term legend doesn't even doesn't even come close to how they were revered by the coon hunting public all across the United States. We we talk about dogs like Finley River Chief, and we talk about Merchant's Banjo too, and we talk about Johnson's Banjo, and we talk about House's Chief. You know these dogs were legendary legends. No, they were they were the rock star canine rock stars of the day. I mean, you're right. I mean, people would come to like Ada or wherever, and and if they knew one of those dogs was in a pen somewhere, it was you know it was it's like going to the zoo. You know, <laughs> people they they just That's wanted right. to sit there and look at him. Oh, you know, yeah. and think think oh my gosh, there he is. You know, and. And so that, that, yeah, there's no question, no question well, about that, you the way know, that was. Exactly. And, you know, I kind of came in, I guess, on the tail end of some of that stuff, but I can remember a dog that I've written about several times and was has been brought up in just recent podcasts about the wipeout line of dogs and all. 
but that was when Mac McAllister had bought Flat Rock Coma. Right. And he had him in a pen there at Ada. And I yep. walked by just like everybody else and looked at this coma dog, you know. And I, I remember him. He was a big dog, uh, you know, and and I'd heard all this stuff about him. But then later on, he became more famous as you, you know, saw his offspring sure. start to, to come into play, you know. And, and that Zeb dog, you know, of Barry Kitties and, and all of that that's followed. And, yeah. and and lots more. But, uh, yeah, it, it, I don't know. I guess, you know, the younger guys will indulge, guys like me, I hope, to to let us have our memories and let us have our stories because, guys, I got to tell you, it was a barrel of fun back in those days. Oh, it, it was. And if I can add one more, Ada. Story. Ira was there one time, uh, and I guess it was late 60s, early 70s. I may not, I, probably in, still in the 60s. But there was a Grand Night Champion cast. It was Merchants Banjo, to, it was three dog cast Merchants Banjo to Finley River Spot, and Warren Hassler with the famous Smoky River Blue Rambler Blue Tick male. And John Monroe was hunting Spot, of course, and Mer James Merchant was hunting Bali. I think Bali won the cast, uh, but at any rate, I, I, I was hunting another cast. I wasn't out there, but they told me that the trucks lined up along that country road where they turned those dogs loose. They said there was probably 100 or 200 people out there standing on the side of the road just listening. You know, yeah, to the <laughs> think about it. Think about it. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it. so when we reminisce about those days, you know, for us, you know, that was like, uh, uh, you know, I don't know how to draw a comparison. I, occasionally people put on Facebook a little deal of, you know, who was the most famous person you ever talked to? Right. You know, and, and of course, in the Coonhound world, those were the guys, you know, that you. Yeah. It was funny when John Monroe was on my podcast here a few weeks ago and he talked about. I asked him about what it was like. What was the temperature between you guys, between you and Merchant and Joe House? And he said, well, you know, okay. He, he says, <laughs> I, he said, I'll just put it this way. He said, I never beat James Merchant, and Joe House never beat me. <laughs> he said. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, you could tell, you know, there was still still some of that pecking order there, you know. But well, I, I, I've, I've always admitted that that I believe, among other reasons, of course, but one of the reasons for for the success of the treeing walkers, and of course, I'm prejudiced, I'm a walker person, obviously. But back in the day, there was some kind of, you could say, it. Uh, tension, there was uh, mm. uh, competitiveness just among the walker breeders themselves. And I think, you know, trying to one up each other, I think I think that really was one of the one of the reasons, certainly. And you've spoke to this in some of your articles about the walkers. But but I think that that competitiveness, that drive by, a, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to name all the names, but probably 10 or 20 people who were really, really after it, really 
made a difference in pushing the walkers, you know, to the forefront. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. No doubt about it. And, you know, I kind of liken it to back in the, again, I use this term, golden days of NASCAR. You know, back when you had Dale Earnhardt and Cale Yarbrough and Richard Petty and Bobby Allison and, and, and all these guys, I mean, they weren't out there uh, uh, looking for parody in their race cars. And, and, <laughs> and, and I mean, they were, you know, if uh, rubbing racing, you know, yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was a knockdown drag out, you know, and sometimes it did evolve to that in the pits. Yeah, afterwards yeah, you know yeah, and yeah. sometimes it did evolve to that at the coon hunts too <laughs> you know there yeah. are the stories out there you know that, that little motel encounters and things that happened after <laughs> between the hunt but you know people were you talk about brand loyalty and all you know you were uh, some people like the housebred dogs and some like the Finley river and some like the the uh, uh, merchant bread and and on and on. It was I, I don't know. Uh, like I say, you know, I'm not a young man with a nice dog right now and a big bankroll. And I might think that going out there and paying four thousand dollars for an entry fee and winning the truck would be the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I might, if I was young, I might think that, you know, right, but. Given what I know, uh, I think I'd have to go back and roll into Autumn Oaks and see just a sea of pickup trucks and walk through the dog barns and see all those legends and see those guys and their little entourages follow them. <laughs> <around>. <laughs> yeah. I remember so well when... The guy, Grisette, started writing for Coonell Bloodlines Magazine, the column called Cooter and Company. Right. And right. I don't know if you remember those stories, but that guy was funny. He could write the story. He talked <laughs> about the Mr. Coon Hunter with his starch car hard overalls. <laughs> he had a little boy that walked along beside him with a backpack just to carry the battery for that big light he had on his head. <laughs> Oh, man, that's so good. If you can go, uh, listeners, if you can get a hold of some old Coonhound Bloodlines magazines from the 80s, look up Cooter and Company. Uh, I think the guy's name was Bob Grisette. He was from down at Tifton, Georgia. Yeah, Bob Grisette, I believe. Yeah, and he yeah. he was hilarious. But well, yeah, you know it. It's I know I've said this before. If you keep looking backwards, you know you'll run in the ditch. So you got to look and see yeah. what's out in front. And uh, I am really encouraged. Uh, see it by the number of young people that I'm seeing coming into the sport. And the way I kind of gauge that is by the number of posts that I see, like in this coon hunting conversations where I get these messenger, messenger texts from people that are asking honest questions. They're getting into the sport and they don't know how to do this or that. And they're asking for information and all. That tells me, you know, that the sport is attracting, you know, young people or maybe not 
so young, but new people into the sport. And I'm very encouraged by that. Yeah, you know, I'm extremely encouraged. And, and you know, uh, and this has been a, I've, I saw a sea change in it over the course of many years judging the dog shows. But it's now also, as you well know, true in the hunting aspects, a lot of young ladies and, and maybe it's not so young ladies are involved in the hunting aspect of it. And, yeah. you know, and they've they've almost uh, this is an exaggeration, but I'm from Texas, so I get to exaggerate. Uh, I mean, they've almost taken over the dog show business. Uh, you know, so many of the oh, winners yeah. in, in that are, are, are ladies and have been for a long time. But uh, but yeah, to see them, uh, the I look at the entry things on occasion and see uh, obviously a lady's name, young lady's name in the winter circle in the hunts and stuff. And so yeah, it's uh, I'm like you. I, I'm uh, I've always been an optimist, and and when I see that sort of stuff, it gives me hope for the sport. Well, it does me too, and and you know I and I. I want to be sure that our listeners understand that I'm not, don't ever want to be a grumpy old man that says, you know, sits around the clubhouse and complains about the way things are done and, and all. But <laughs> it was interesting just last week. And it, it's hard not to do that. Just last week uh, on a message thread, somebody, uh, maybe I'd made a comment, something about, who knows what it's this younger fella and he'll remain nameless and he said well you know i don't really care what you did 20 years ago <laughs> and i and i said i said well if it wasn't for me doing what i was doing 20 years ago you might not be doing what you're doing today <laughs> but i said nah don't don't get into a uh you know uh Peeing contest with somebody over that because each generation is different and they got their different ways of looking at things and all. But uh, yeah, but yeah. Well, Sid, we've been at this an hour. Can you believe that? Well, it time flies when you're having fun. That's what they say. <laughs> well, what's going on with you and your hunting experiences right now? Are you training? Do you still train young dogs? Or I, I'm helping with it now. My my main partner right now is a guy you know, Tom Froze in yeah. Pawnee, Oklahoma. And Tom's, you know, he's uh, uh, about 20 years or maybe a little bit more than that younger than me. And, and so he's more, he's content. He runs a club there in Ralston, Oklahoma, and, and he's just still more, much more active in the, he likes the, the competition still. And, and he, he loves to raise pups. And, yeah. uh, and we, uh, we're, we have almost all females. That's, that's kind of our, well, you kind of always lean toward the females. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I kind of, I, I kind of really always did. And, and so that's my, you know, we're, I call it a kind of a loose confederation. You know, he, he deals with other folks, but, but we're partners on three females and, um, you know, raising some good pups. And then I like to just pleasure hunt more than anything. I do like to dabble in the competition periodically, but, uh, but my, I'm kind of consider myself a, a satellite of it and, and, and I can take them down here where I am and, and pleasure hunt. And like I say, occasionally show them or, or hunt them in a competition event. Uh, but so it worked, it works out perfectly for me because going back to that vicarious, you know, with being involved with younger guys or guys, you know, uh, that, that allows me to have a part in it. Like you alluded to earlier, your name's on the papers too. 
so it's a it's a perfect setup for, yeah. for me. Well, good. That's good. Well, you know what I've done here lately. It's kind of interesting, and I didn't really intend, I guess, for it to be that way. But uh, my friend Heath Hyatt up in Virginia, Heath and I've been buddies ever since back about ninety seven when we met at Plot Days. We both got he won the overall high scoring dog of the hunt, and I won the opposite sex, and we got together for a picture and kind of you know started talking and we lived not all that far apart maybe a hundred miles or so apart so anyway we've become great friends over the years and and heath has been on many podcasts and, and he's a professional trainer he trains police dogs for a living and, and also is on a, on the police force there in virginia but and he's my bear hunting guy. I mean, when I want to go bear hunting, I go up to Virginia and hunt with him. Well, he and I bought recently a semen pup out of Track Man and a Lone Pine female, Lone Pine Jillian, who is out of Bone Collector, and the Biffy Sue female that won the UKC World Hunt in 2016. So he and I had to go get a couple of cosigners each. And uh, second mortgage on the house, and we, <laughs> we bought this. We bought this uh, bone collector. I mean, this uh, all grand track man semen pup, and she right. was born on my birthday, October twelfth, oh, okay. uh, but okay. last fall. Well, my good friend Bill Shinniger up in. Uh, Northwestern Ohio won plot days last year with a dog he calls Saddle Up Lazarus. Lazarus won his cast all three nights and was the high scoring dog at plot, plot days. And so then Bill was able to obtain a female out of my old hoss dog. And there was a long story about that, unfortunately. And he bred her to Lazarus and, uh, and unfortunately her stomach uh, twisted or, or she bloated and and died 12 days after the puppies were born. But mm. anyway, Bill held one of those back for me, and he's born on October the 11th. So yeah. these two puppies, uh, and now I have a partner in him, uh, Mark Miller uh, in North Carolina, who's a good dog man. He's a walker man to the bone, but he's always wanted a plot. So now here's the deal. Told you that big long story to tell you. These puppies are a day apart in their age. And it's yeah. going to be fun to see because both of them have good trainers, good dog men. Uh, and just to see, you know, does the cream come to the top? Is it going to be brindle colored or is it going to be spotted? <laughs> right. So anyway, that's kind of a fun thing for me that I got going on right now with my dog. Well, you got anything stand out right now that you're really excited about? Well, I mean, we're uh, we those the three females that I the two two of them are dual grand champions and they're good solid dogs. And then one of them, uh, I've got a full litter mate sister. Hers five years younger, uh, who's she's doing a good job right now. She uh, got a long way to go, but she's treated some coons by herself. And then mm. and then uh, we uh, Tom bred uh, to the uh, uh, one of our females to so the goose dog that oh. won the PKC World Hunt and stuff. Cool. So, 
Yeah. So we're kind of, when I say loose confederation, where Tom is involved with other people like the Cole McVeigh and, and Joe Manning and them down in East Central Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, there's a, a Stacy Smitherman is a well-known veterinarian down there who also coon hunts. So, and it's kind of, I guess, ironic because they're, they're right down in that kind of south of where Fairfield is and everything. So, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So, so indirectly, we've got a kind of a connection to East Central Texas, uh, you know. And so, yeah, we've got some, there, there's some pups and stuff that's, that are coming along and looking good, particularly out of one of the females that Tom and I have together. So there again, it, it allows me, I'll tell you right quickly, I, I, I knew he knew me when he was a kid. He saw me at Ada and then at State Hunt when he's like early teens or whatever. Yeah. And and we'd been apart forever and I really didn't remember him that well. But when I was Master Hounds at the ACHA World Hunt at Stillwater, Oklahoma back in 2017, uh, he lives not far from Stillwater and he was there and he kind of, we reminisced and he just reminded me and then we, joined forces on uh, Sally, which is one of the dual grands that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she wasn't dual grand then, but she is now. Anyway, long story short, I told him, I said, Tom, I'm coming out to Paris. And I'll, I'll, as long as I draw breath, I'll have a coon dog. But I, I just if I just had one or two and whether I ever went to hunt again or whatever, I'm fine. I, I love to pleasure hunt. But anyway, so God works in strange and mysterious ways. Mm-hmm. But he said, so he kind of, he kind of drew me back into the the activity of all of it in a in there again in kind of a vicarious way which works perfectly for me. Yeah, well that's great. That's great. And and if there's one thing that an older hunter cherishes is a good younger hunter to hunt with. <laughs> it, but that's, it, that's it's a, just yeah. necessary for an older yeah. hunter if he's going to continue to do it. And yeah, I've been yeah. so blessed in that way. And, and you know, I, listeners know I have this cruise dog, this, this uh, Lone Pine bred dog. And, and I'll be, he's in Alabama right now. He's been up there since my Arkansas trip. Shows you how much I coon hunt down here in Florida. If I want to go anymore, I just have to go with somebody else. And, and so I figured my dogs are doing a whole lot better getting hunted by somebody else than they are staying cooped up here with me. But right. uh, anyway, I've met a young man up in Virginia near where my brother lives that has uh, 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 a lot of territory to hunt and is just covered up in coons. Uh, they're dairy farmers and, and all, and he's got a real nice young pup that he uh, got from Randy Smith that's out of the Cooney Valley Pack dog that I believe is Sean Burden's dog there in Kentucky, uh, out of the Power Pack dog. And one of uh, and Randy Smith's uh, Lone Pine Fran female, and it's doing really good. It's treat a uh, coon on its own. I think it's about seven months old now. So uh, Cruz is going to be spending some time with him up there. Uh, he needs something, you know, that he can take to the hunts and also. So anyway, so I I've been just blessed uh, on every hand, you know, with these these young fellows that uh, right. they're willing and. And, you know, and like you say, it allows me to keep my hand in and and so forth. So I'm really, really grateful for that. I had something that I was going to ask you about that. Uh, oh, you mentioned Joe Manning Jr. 
What a role that guy is on when you mentioned the goose dog. You know, the goose dog won the, uh, what was it, the PKC World Hunt? Yes, yes. Yeah, and then he he comes back here just a week ago from the time uh, before we're recording and wins a truck with the pro sport organization with the dog that he calls Dominator. Right, right, yeah. Joseph, he's a great guy, and he's a great handler, and um, yeah, I knew his dad. Of course, you know how us old guys are. I knew Joe Manning Sr. way back. But mm-hmm. anyway, but yeah, Joe is, he, he's on a roll, and, and he's one of those, you know, I kind of alluded to, to his type, if you want to call it that, earlier in the deal. He's one of those who really, you know, he goes for the gusto and goes for the top rung, and, you know, there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Well, and lo and behold, as we're recording this right now, I, uh, we're we're recording on a Friday, and a PKC truck hunt is going on in Batesville, Mississippi, and I I believe I saw this morning he's hunting a dog named Fred, which I'm not familiar with that dog, but he's got him I think in the top sixteen down there for that truck hunt. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's he is on a roll and. And you know uh, he's he's smart. He's a smart man. He's a good handler. Uh, you know, and he he just uh, he's willing to dedicate what it takes to uh, you know to do that and 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 make that level. And and you know more more power to him. I, oh, yeah. I, I tell you, these uh, uh, you know the younger he's Joe's not a baby, but he's certainly not doing mine's age. And but uh, I tell you, these young guys uh, and and middle age for that matter who are willing and can really get after it and um you know it's a it's just a, a different era but uh, it's great to see them succeed when they put that much you know effort into it oh it is you know i i've often said to people i've always tried to associate with successful people because i always learn things when i do and uh you know it's great to see their success and when i talk with uh, my friend Josh about when was the the uh, golden age of coon hunting. It's not an argument. It's 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 just conversation. You know, I'm glad if this is what's suiting uh, the young hunter of today. The only thing that I fear about these bigger uh, money hunts that require huge entry fees is that it will discourage some of the younger hunters and say. Well, you know, there's no way I can come up with that kind of money. Therefore, I can't play. But there is a level for everybody to participate. And I think one of the greatest things that's come along in a long time is this tournament of champions that the UKC had. I mean, it costs you a hundred dollar bill to play in that game, and you can, you know, they've upped the ante on that. The purse now, and there's more dogs allowed. I think it. It was 64, and now I think there's 90-some in the final. Well, will be after their zone hunts for a chance to win $50,000 for first place. So, and just, and you know, you got to get out there and go to the UKC hunts and win five casts. But in well, doing I, so, yeah. yeah, you make your dog a night champion in the process. Yeah, so. it, it, it goes back to the earlier part of our conversation. You can enjoy this sport at any level, and, you know, uh, you may be an 18 year old kid who can't afford some of those entry like you can, like you're referring to, but when you're 28, you may be able to, mm-hmm. and, but, but you can still enjoy 
the sport uh, uh, at at any at any level that you you know are in it. And and mm-hmm. and I would like and I'm not a big horse race fan, but I respect the sport and all these great horse race horses in the history of the that business stuff. But there again, to play at the Kentucky Derby level, yeah, you've got to have a lot of money and so on to play at that level. But you know what? You can come to down to some local racetrack and you know you mm. can have a good horse at, at that racetrack. That they're not yeah. Kentucky, they're not triple crown type horses, but they still uh, give you the the excitement of the competition and exactly. so on. And it's the same way with these dogs. You know, you can go out. Uh, my gosh, when I was a kid, it was just a thrill to tree a coon. And uh, and then when we entered the night hunts for $6 or $5, whatever it was, you know, to win a 10-inch trophy was, I, I'd sit there and stare at it almost for hours on end, you know. So, yeah. You just make this sport what you want to make of it is what I'm trying to get at. Well, you, you put it very well, and I can look back on my my experience you know getting that first pair of car hearts when dad came home from the job he was a pipe fitter and he'd been up the ohio valley they didn't the coal mining miners in southern west virginia didn't know what a pair of car hearts were <laughs> they right. wore bib overalls you know liberties yep. or big or big smiths or what i don't know what the brand but yeah. man but yeah. but in the books those guys that we were talking about merchant and joe house and and these guys, they wore Carhartt overall, man. Right. And right. so when my dad came home at Christmas, and you know, and I opened that package, and I had my own pair of Carhartt overall <laughs> in my size. Yeah. I was yeah. Mister Coon Hunter himself from that exactly. point on. <laughs> you know. Yeah. You- <laughs> and I went, and he went with me. We went to the Southeastern Ohio Championship at Barlow, Ohio, just across the river, not far from Parkersburg, West Virginia. And I got to hunt that night, and he walked along with me on the cast, and I placed, there was a hundred, and I believe six dogs, counting registered and grades all together. And I had a registered plot, and I won sixth place. And right. I know that I p- polished all that gold plating off of that <laughs> trophy by the time I got it back to West Virginia. So, you know, there are degrees, you know. And then later on, you know, I made a night, my first night champion. And yep. that was, you know, that was a level. Oh, I absolutely. remember back in the day, and, and what I did is a goal. I had one of, do you remember, I called them billboard hats. I saw a picture not long ago, of, I think it was Jerry Mall posted on Facebook of one of these hats, where we put the dog's name and his titles up on the crown of our hat. Oh, uh, yes, yes. They had like a, maybe a white <laughs> face on the crown. They stood up about six inches tall <laughs> so you could get all the stuff. And they had those little felt, fuzzy felt letters that you could go to the hunt and they They'd iron those on your cat. <laughs> and I well, had, yeah, go ahead. No, I, that's, uh, I'm just listening. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I had one, it was like my goal. I put, uh-huh. I put night champion, bear pin plots, Bronco. And I put uh-huh. that hat up. And I said, when I make that, then I'll start wearing that hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it was kind of, 
And, and oh, and I remember Willie Davis, W. L. Davis. Do you remember yep. that name? I knew, I knew, I knew Willie Davis. Yeah, yes, from Virginia, black and yep. tan coonhound. He yep. had the first. He's the first guy I knew that had all of his dogs' names and titles on the back of his jacket. Uh, right. And when yep. he walked into a clubhouse in Southwest Virginia, it was oh, I'm not worthy. You know, we were all <laughs> right. just kind of bowing down over here, like, like yeah. Wayne and Garth on Wayne. yeah. Wayne's world. I'm not worried. Right. Yeah. Oh, Willie, you know, I mean, he. So, anyway, those degrees of things, you know, down stages that we've gone through. And, and you know, winning plot day, you know, one year. And that was a big thing to me. I mean, that was my world hunt because I, <laughs> I basically couldn't hunt anything else. But I was at UKC and they let me hunt in the all plot hunt at plot days, you know. But anyway, <laughs> the, to the point that you make is there are degrees. And it's just as much fun to be winning down here at the local club level and maybe go to your state hunt and win your cast there or or maybe, you know, get one of the big trophies or whatever and, and take it by steps, you know, but enjoy what you're doing. Enjoy right. your dog. And you made such a great point early on in this conversation that if you've got a dog at a running tree, you know, you can compete with anything out there on a given night. It's like they say in the NFL on any given Sunday. Well, on any given night, when you cut four animals loose in the dark, it can be your night. Absolutely. Yeah. Sid, this has been a great conversation. I've enjoyed it tremendously. Uh, we've got about an hour and 20 minutes in now. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to talk about that we haven't discussed? No, not really. I think we've covered a lot of bases. You know, we'll maybe we'll do another one of these one of the Absolutely. But, uh, uh, I I just uh, you know I recall you and I sitting in that uh, Winnebago back in the day, and you said, "Sid, we're thinking about starting a coon dog magazine here at UKC. What do you think?" <laughs> and I'll I'll remember that night and that conversation. So yeah. that was a long time ago. <laughs> that was a long time ago, uh, Sid. It really was. And, and a lot of people worked hard uh, to see that thing go. You know, I look back, you know, Bloodlines was the UKC publication, and it was mainly a rule, a house organ with some right. rules and, and maybe uh, not even, even, even any interpretations as such. Just state the rules, state the breed standards maybe a few little ads and and looking at the subscription uh, sub, or circulation of full crime American Cooner, each of those were around 30,000, as I mentioned right. earlier. And looking at bloodlines, we were like 3,000, you know, <laughs> and yeah. what a long road that was. But we did. We built it back to where, you know, we were right up there bumping heads with the big boys, you know, before before that that uh, stage of my life was over but that was a fun time and a uh, lot of good people involved and and like yourself for sure but anyway you and i could sit and re reminisce about old times probably for the rest of the day but let's just <laughs> say it's it's great to be able to talk to you again and we just need to do it more often 
Well, that's fine. You know, we've only got about 130 years of experience between us. So <laughs> that there's a lot of stories. There's a lot of stories and, and guys, they're not all bad. You know, <laughs> you could learn something from these. Sid's still got his hair. Think about that. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he's, and he teaches still, don't you see it? You're, you're yeah, still. I, I substitute, substitute teach some, but I, right. I, I, I dyed my hair silver, you know, and it was a natural process. It didn't take... <laughs> <laughs> and, and listen here, boys and girls, this guy worked in nuclear energy. So we're not talking to a guy that fell off the turnip truck here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I told, I told uh, Jason uh, Dartry the other day, I said, you, you know, we didn't just find you on the side of the road selling turnip greens. You know, you, <laughs> you know, things. And, but Sid, it's been great, man. Yeah. It's such a, such a joy to talk to you again. And, and I guess, uh, like I always do with these podcasts, I wind it up this way and just kind of play on words for that book I read. Uh, writ. And and if you are interested in my book, Gone to the Dogs, The Coon Hunter's Journey, it is available online at stevefielderbooks.com or you can get it through dusupply.com or through markzepp.com. Uh, but at any rate, uh, if someone asks you, where's Steve Fielder? You tell him, he's gone to the dogs. <laughs>